right, let's uh, let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word now, we are so thankful for uh, the revelation of who you are within it. God, we pray that you would help us to understand you better, that you would help us to understand ourselves better, our relationship with you. God, we pray that you would encourage those who are in need of encouragement, comfort those who are in need of comfort, correct those who are in need of correction. God, we pray that you would be very uh, just uh, present here today in each one of our lives, in each one of our experiences. Help us to understand, um, help us to live, help us to grow um, according to your will and your desire for our lives. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So today we come to the end of our series on uh, what will eternity be like, the life after. Um, next week we'll begin looking at questions surrounding the issue of apologetics. How do we defend our faith? How do we answer some of these questions that are sometimes posed to us as Christians in terms of what we believe and why we believe it? Um, I'm lo really looking forward to that series, looking forward to digging into those issues, and, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to... Uh, to help us all be better prepared to, to share our faith, to, to make the disciples as Christ has commanded us to. But today, as I said, we are uh, wrapping up our series on the life to come, what that will look like, and we come to the book of Revelation. As you would expect, at some point in this series, we had to land here. Uh, we've spent most of our time in First and Second Corinthians dealing with uh, Paul's teachings there concerning the resurrection and uh, the life to come, and, and exactly how he expresses that. But obviously, um, it's in the book of Revelation where you get kind of a, the, the biggest picture of what we'll encounter and what that'll be like. And so if you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. And we're going to be looking primarily in chapter 21 and chapter 22. We're also going to be jumping around just a little bit, looking at other passages that kind of support some of the ideas we're looking at. But those will be our two primary uh, passages here today, or, or those two chapters. I would encourage you, since we won't be able to read all the way through both of those chapters, to spend some time uh, this afternoon, perhaps, uh, reading through those chapters, just to, again, to get an overall picture of what we're dealing with. And so, uh, let's begin by looking in verses 1 and 2. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. This is how John begins his vision of the eternal state. Now, we've talked before uh, through the course of this, this study, the distinguishing between heaven and the eternal state. The, the eternal state is a new heaven, a new earth. It's a new uh, way of living. It's a new creation, as John describes here. I saw a new heaven a new earth. And heaven is, uh, in biblical terms, it's, it's the location for the intermediate state. For that time in between death and resurrection, um, that's what heaven is. And we talked about that. We looked at that in detail. If you want to know exactly what I, what I said about that or what Scripture says about that, then um, I invite you to just revisit those messages that are online. They're posted online. You can, you can find them there. Um, but this is the eternal state. And notice how John describes it here. He says, I saw it coming down like a, a bride adorned for her husband. And the picture there, the image there is significant because the idea of 
the bride of Christ, the, the idea of the, the bride of, of God, if you will, in some ways, it is almost always applied to God's people. The church is consistently and constantly referred to throughout Scripture as the bride of Christ. It, it's a picture that's, that's kind of laid for us uh, in the very beginning in the Old Testament in a couple locations, really starts to, to take hold during some of Jesus' parables, and then Paul really picks up that image and, and carries it in many of his teachings. But here he's not talking about the church. He's talking about this new creation, this new city, this new location, if you will. And, and what John is doing here is he's connecting those two realities. He's connecting the people of God with the place of God. And, and what he's trying to communicate to us here, I believe, what he's trying to relate to us here is that this new creation will be an environment characterized by its inhabitants as much as by its contents. In other words, you'll know this place by who lives there. That's a big part of what John's trying to get across. And if you think about the logic of that, I mean, it makes sense. How many places in this world do you not want to go to or want to go to because of who's there? Okay, There are just places you're like, you know, it's, it's an okay place, it's, you know, whatever, whether it's a restaurant or a park or whatever, it's, a, it's an okay place to be, but man, the people just wear me out. It's not some place I want to be. Conversely, there might be some place that, you know, on the outside or by appearances may not look all that great, but the people there make it worth it. Okay? And, and what John, I think, is trying to communicate here is that there is a, a connection, there is a relationship between the nature of our eternal status, the nature of eternity, and the people who live there. Now, carrying on that theme, what have we said about the resurrected body? What has Scripture told us is the nature of the resurrected body? It's given us four descriptors that we've used over and over and over again during this series. It's imperishable. Okay. In other words, it, it, it's a place that's not going to die away. It's just as we're, we will have a body that's not going to die away. It is it possesses glory. That is, it's an expression, it's a communication of its connection with God. The place has that. Our resurrected bodies will have that. It expresses power. Okay? The, the transformed life, the transformed situation can only help to express power, can only, uh, can only do that. There, there's nothing else the resurrected body could really do except express power. There's nothing else that this new status will do except express power. And it is, it's spiritual. It's supernatural. It's other than. Both our resurrected bodies will be of that nature. Paul, remember, if, if you will, Paul called it the spiritual body. We talked about how that's an oxymoron. You, those two don't really fit together. Spirit and body don't really fit together. Well, that's the nature of this, this place to come. It, it's, it's supernatural. So I want to look at those four things with just a little bit more detail by looking at these two chapters in particular. And the first thing I want us to see is that our, our, our status in the life to come will be a redeemed people enjoying a redeemed environment. This is the imperishable part of the equation. In 21.5, John says this, he writes this, Then the one seated on the throne, this is, this is Jesus, this is Christ, said, Look! Or behold, I am making everything new. Making everything new. And 
that that picture is, is so significant because the world is falling apart in many respects. We see that. And why is it falling apart? Why, why do we see this chaos? Why do we see this, the struggles? Why do we see the hurt? Why do we have this, this dreaded disease, this, this virus that we're dealing with? Why do we have all of these things? Because of man's sin. When man sinned, corrupted the environment, corrupted creation itself. And, and what we see in Scripture is Christ stepping in to change that, to renew that, to refresh that. And, and you see it, we, we generally describe it in three stages, although it, scripturally, biblically, all of these stages are, are intertwined. You can't separate one from another. But we use it. We use these images just to, to, to talk about exactly the process of salvation, what's involved. The first of these is justification. It's what happens at the moment of salvation. And this is Christ rescuing us from the penalty of sin. This is Christ stepping in and saying, though you were guilty and though you were under condemnation, you are no longer in that status. You are now saved from the penalty of sin. We talked about that. We sang about that with the washed away. The song we sang just a few moments ago. The second stage is, is called sanctification. Sanctification is a big fancy word for being set apart, being distinguished, being, being uh, created to be something different. This is the growing aspect of salvation. And, and this would be Christ working in our lives to, to save us from the power of sin. First, he rescues us from the penalty of sin. Then, as we grow and as we learn and as we mature, sin has less and less sway on our lives. It's still present throughout our lives. We still struggle with it throughout our lives. This side of heaven, we will. But we begin to grow. We begin to mature. We begin to, to develop more and more the capacity to say, no, I'm not going to go down that path. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't have to wander down that path anymore. And then the third phase is the phase that, that's focused upon here in Revelation. It's what we call glorification. It's the final stage of salvation. Again, all three are intertwined. You can't separate one from the other. If one's present, they're all present. If one's missing, they're all missing. Okay. But glorification is that, that salvation from the very presence of sin. It's when God has totally transforms, makes a whole new creation. And so, penalty of sin, power of sin, presence of sin, all gone. That's salvation. That's God's cure for our fall, for what we have done, for what we've done to this environment. But it's not just us that God is interested in redeeming. It's not only humanity that God is interested in delivering. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Okay, he's talking about the suffering he's encountering. He's in prison at this point. And he says, it's bad, but compared to the glory I'm going to receive, it ain't nothing. Okay, not even worth comparing. He goes on. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to... Utility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul tells us right there in Romans chapter 8 that the salvation we'll experience, the deliverance we'll experience, the transformation we will experience will also be a transformation of creation. The new heaven, the new earth has already highlighted that in the passage we started with. God will repair all that is broken. It'll all be healed. It'll all be cured. What it, in fact, describes biblically is a return to Eden. A return to that pre-fallen state. Now, it won't be completely like that because we'll be on this side of redemption. We'll be on this side of Christ's salvation act. And so what we'll enjoy and what we'll encounter will also have that added flavor, that added feeling, that added joy of the fact that Christ has redeemed us. And we'll be able to praise Him for the deliverance. But there is a connection between Eden and what's to come. Notice what John writes in Revelation chapter 22, the first couple verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any, anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their forehead, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a picture of Eden. You have the tree of life itself highlighted and emphasized, the, the river flowing through the city, just as you had the river flowing through Eden. You have all of these images that are that are similar. You have this return. And what this is meant to communicate, what we will appreciate about this in eternity, what we'll notice about this in eternity is that this was built, this was established, this new creation exists to communicate the victory of God. It is a declaration of His authority. It is a declaration of His victory. We talked about this in, in previous weeks, that death is an enemy. Death is not something that is rejoiced in, not something that's acknowledged as a good thing in Christianity. It is the enemy. And what does Scripture say? Christ has won over death. He has victory over death. And you see that highlighted here. The death, the chaos, the hurt, the pain, all of those things that characterize our present situation will fall under subjection to God completely and totally as we face, as we look at eternity. The second thing that we notice about this new environment, besides it being imperishable, it also possesses glory. So therefore, it'll be a holy people experiencing a holy place. As you look here, you see uh, this description played out in verses 22 through 26 of chapter 21. It says, 
I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Now what does holiness mean? Holiness means to be separate. It means to be distinct. It means to be uh, something that is unique in many ways. And what John is communicating here in this, in this view, in this picture of the eternal status, is that the place we will dwell will be holy. It'll be unique. It'll be distinct. And he says it'll be unique and, and you stink. Uh, you stink? <laughs> wow. It will not stink. I promise you that. <laughs> okay? It'll be unique because of God's connection to it. Okay? And it'll be holy just as God is holy. Now, generally speaking, when we talk about holiness, it, it, it carries with it kind of two two primary ideas, two primary images. One is the image of security, strength, power. Okay, to say God is holy is to say he possesses power. Okay. And, and what do you see here? You see a location that is secure. Now, how do we know it's secure? Notice what it says here. Its gates will never close by day, and there will never be night. In other words, the gates of this city are not going to close. The image here is not to suggest, you know, this mighty fortress necessarily. The image here is to say, this place is so secure, you never have to close its gates. What were the gates? The gates were the primary defensive measure for a city. If a, if a, if a kingdom was going to attack a, a city or whatever, they would start at the gates. That's where they would work. And so you had throughout history all sort the development of all sorts of different gates to, to prevent that. You go through archaeology and look at the different structures of gates, they, they get more and more developed. Why? Because they know that's the weak point. But John here says the gates of this city are never even closed. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about attack. You don't have to worry about opposition. You don't need to worry about those threats. And then he furthers this image by talking about the, the wealth of the nations coming in. Okay. And, and, and again, that's just a picture of the ultimate power. Don't, don't build too much in terms of a, of a new economy and those sorts of things. It's just a picture that's meant to say in one in yet another way, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Because who do you pay tribute to as a nation? You pay tribute to the nation that's greater than you. Okay? You pay tribute to the nation that's in charge. It's your way of saying, yep, you're the boss and I'm not. Here's some money, just to make that clear. Okay? And so that's what the image is trying to communicate here. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is the one who's in charge, that, that God is the one who is the authority. There's no darkness. I think that's another image of security. Why? Because I don't think there's any place or anything more disquieting than darkness. Okay? I'm not afraid of the dark. Okay? At least I don't think I am. But I don't like the dark. Okay? And, and, and just ask yourselves, okay, you get up in the middle of the night or, or you're walking through your house and the power goes out. Okay? You're walking along. The power goes out. Your stance, your walk, everything suddenly changes. You walk from walking just real secure to all of a sudden you're, okay, where's the walls? Where's the furniture I might stub my toe on? Where's the things I might trip over? And you start walking real softly. You start walking real kind of just cautiously to make sure nothing happens. It's what darkness does to you. It unsettles you. It, it makes it to where you can't function with any level of normalcy. And so when it says there's no darkness, a big part of what's being expressed there is the security we can walk in. There's, there won't be anything for us to, to stumble over. There won't be anything for us to, to worry about running into because we'll be in a secure situation, a secure environment. Now the second aspect of holiness is righteousness, the goodness of God. To say something is set apart that's one thing. That, that's significant. That's important. That it's unique. But if you just leave it there, the image is incomplete. Because I know a lot of people and a lot of things that are unique that aren't good. That you don't want to be a part of. And so in biblical terms, holiness also includes this image, this idea of righteousness. That is being in a right standing, being in a right situation. And so John here in, in verse 11 of chapter 21, he says what? He says, having the glory of God, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The, the image here is, is of a jewel that, that's translucent, a jewel itself that, that almost gives off light by itself. That's the idea. And I think we've, we've perhaps encountered those, you know, especially diamonds are really good at that. You look at a diamond and, and it almost gives off light all by itself. You know, and that's kind of the idea. It's the idea of this righteousness. It's the idea of this purity. It's the idea of this portrayal. And so you, you bring these two realities together and, and you see that this new kingdom, this new reality, this new creation is built also to relate God's uniqueness. It's built to, to relate his victory over sin but also his uniqueness. And this is why throughout the book of Revelation, the one cry of the church, the one cry of the redeemed is what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who, Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's his essence, and it's portrayed here. And that holiness is, is a component. It's, it's expressed in his glory, a glory that we get to share in, which brings us to the third element. Expressing power, a glorified people filled, filling a glorified habitation. You see references here to 
God's provision throughout eternity. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He'll wash it away. He'll wipe it away. The, the pain, the sorrow, the grief, it'll all be gone. 22.3 mentions the tree of life. This is God's provision. This is God's power manifested in our life and in our experience to where we don't experience sorrow anymore. Now think about that. Now it's not a, it's not a, a blind um, blissful experience where you're just kind of numb and just kind of, you know, it's just fake. It's not that kind of fake joy. It's a real joy that acknowledges where we've been and where we are. We praise God for His deliverance. So there will be some recollection of what existed before. There has to be. But where we'll stand and what we'll be experiencing and what we'll be enjoying will be so great that the recollection of the former will only exist for the purpose of bringing more joy now. Now, one of the questions that might occur to you, because it's a question that I think occurs to a lot of people, is how will I enjoy eternity with the realization that there's a hell? How can I, in this environment, in this setting, how can I experience any kind of joy knowing there are people who are in hell? And it's a good question. It's a question I ponder and have dealt with for, for years, trying to find a satisfactory solution. And different people have tried different approaches. One approach is universalism. Everybody gets saved. But that's not biblical. The Bible's quite clear that apart from Christ, you spend eternity in hell. John has already said that here in 21 and 22. We've talked about that. Whoever was not found in the book of life, he mentions them. Well, maybe hell's not all that hellish is another approach some have taken. They'll go the route of annihilationism where God just wipes out the existence of those who are not saved. But again, that doesn't fit the descriptions that we get in Jesus' teachings. So some will go the route of, of ignorance. We just won't know about that. But I don't see in heaven, I don't see in the eternal state any, any sort of taking away of knowledge. It just doesn't seem to, to be what's expressed there. How can we truly praise God for our salvation, be happier about our salvation if we don't remember salvation. So where does that leave us? For me, it leaves me with the supposition, the idea that while I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, I'm going to be like God in some ways. I'm not going to be God. God will always be God. But in terms of my knowledge, my understanding, my proximity to Him, my walk with Him is going to change how I view things to some degree. And this is why I say that. God loves your loved ones more than you ever will. 
understand that? That's a very important truth. Spouses, children, friends, God loves them more than you will ever be capable of loving them. Understand that. He sent his son to die. He's done more to reach out to them, to connect, all of that, than you ever could. And yet somehow, with the reality of hell still being in place, somehow he experiences perfect joy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 6 both describe God as perfectly blessed, completely blessed in his habitation in heaven. So while I don't know all that's going to happen here, here's some things that I that I believe are going to happen based upon what I know from Scripture. Number one, we will understand sin more clearly there than we do here. We will understand the depth of it. We will understand the pain of it in terms of how it relates to God. We'll understand how dramatically sin has affected things, things that we don't see now, things that we don't understand now, things that we're callous to or we're numb to or we just ignore now. We will see there. But we'll see it, secondly, in light of God's justice and God's mercy. And so there, as we understand the full realm of justice, as we see the bigger picture than we're capable of seeing now, and as we see how deep and amazing grace really is, how deeply God has reached in and, and transformed lives and, and all the things that He's done there, we will have a holistic picture that allows us to walk, to live, to dwell, to exist with perfect joy. Again, I don't understand it all because I'm on this side of it and not that side of it. But I know who my God is and I know He loves people more than I ever will. And if He has a way of dealing with it, then we will have a way of dealing with it. And that's all I can say about it. The nature of this glorified habitation will be glorified by one very important factor. And that is that God will be there. It'll be an, an unlimited expression of God's being. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We will experience that power. We will experience that glory. Not for any other reason than the fact that God himself is what we will experience in the eternal status. That's our hope. The fourth thing about this situation, this circumstance, is that it will be a new level of relationship revealing a new level of reality. This is the spiritual or the supernatural aspect of the life to come. And we see this, I think, expressed a, a couple of ways, probably more than that, but a couple of ways I want to point out here. 
Number one is the removal of barriers. Barriers that, that separate us. Barriers that separate us from God. Barriers that separate us from each other. And I think this is expressed in, in one simple sentence. Revelation 21.1. The sea was no more. The sea was no more. Now what is John getting at here? Why is that a part of this vision? Why does it matter that the sea doesn't exist? Well, I think there are several reasons that it matters. Number one, in the ancient Near East, in the world that John lived in, in the world that the biblical writers lived in, the number one threat to humanity, the number one destructive force to humanity, the number one force that man really hadn't been able to conquer was the sea, was the ocean. Now, we got our big liners and all these other things, but, I mean, I've seen, I've seen some videos of cruise ships out on the ocean just being thrown all over the place. Craziness. Huge, huge ships, just like toys in a bathtub. Okay. The sea is this powerful, chaotic force in Scripture. You see it throughout the narratives, in the Psalms. Described as the sea is described as a monster in the Psalms. And so to say there is no more sea is to say that chaos is gone. To say that opposition is gone. To say that threat is gone. This image of the sea as this force, it plays out in Revelation 13. What is the source? What's the origin of the beast in Revelation 13? It's the sea. And so to take that away is to take away that threat. Not a threat to God. One of the great images throughout the Bible is God's victory over the sea over and over and over again. From Genesis chapter 1, where he speaks to the deep and it divides, to Exodus 15, to where the Israelites cross through the middle of the sea unharmed because of God's mighty power to Job and the Psalms where the sea creatures, the sea monsters are, are playthings to him, to Jesus standing up in the boat saying, peace be still. Over and over and over again, you have these images of God speaking to the sea and proclaiming victory over it. But the image here is that it won't be a threat to us any longer. We won't have our greatest fears anymore. But a second thing that applies here in terms of the barriers is in terms of connection with people. Where was John when he wrote this letter, when he wrote Revelation? He was on the Isle of Patmos. You remember, it's introduced. Why was he on the Isle of Patmos? Because he had been exiled from his people. Rome had, in its wisdom or in its thought or whatever, however you want to see it, had thought that would be a good punishment for this man was to remove him from everybody. So if you're riding from an island in the middle of the sea and the thing standing between you and the people that you love, the people you've ministered, the people you've cared for, is the sea, then the image of the sea being no more is quite a powerful image to you. It's quite a powerful picture of reunification with those that you love. Reconnection with those who you serve. It, it, it's a removal of those barriers that separate 
you from me and me from you. I think a third thing that it communicates is relationship connection with God. In Revelation chapter 4, as John's starting, you see this image that he describes to us. And he says he, he saw the multitudes, the, the throngs of people, every, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And he saw God on the throne. And he says between God and those people was the sea. Now, not the chaotic sea of evil, but it says a sea that was like glass. Okay? In other words, it was calm, it was peaceful. God was in control. But it nonetheless, what? It divided God from man. So here at the end, as the vision plays out, when he says there was no more sea, we have what? We have that communion with God. We have that connection with God. And if there's one thing I've tried to emphasize, and one thing I've tried to illustrate throughout this series, is the centrality of God to our ideas of heaven and the life to come. To not get wrapped up in, in all the, the, the content so to speak, of heaven, but to get wrapped up and to be focused upon our connection with God. Why? Because that's where we're going to see the power of heaven and the life to come today. Why can I live with victory? Why can I live with with power and authority? Why can I live with this hope? Why can I experience joy right now? Because I am tasting the first fruits of what I'll experience in heaven and the life to come because I have Jesus dwelling in my life. I get the taste of Him right now. I get to enjoy Him right now. And the enjoyment and the experience and the hope and the love and the joy that that I experience from that, it's going to be manifested, it's going to be multiplied exponentially when I get to that status of heaven in the life to come. Let me close with an illustration. It's one of my favorite illustrations of this idea that I've just expressed. It's a story of a man who was visiting his doctor, and as he sat there visiting his doctor, his his doctor had some bad news for him. He he had to tell him that he only had just a few weeks to live. And the man noticed that the doctor was was struggling to to tell him, struggling to, to get it out, struggling to communicate this great loss he was about to experience. And the man told his doctor, don't don't be sad for me. He said, I, I've been bought with the price by the blood of Jesus, and I know where I'm headed. Shed no tears for me. And the doctor looked at the man and he said, You know, I've never been all that taken with the idea of heaven. When I've heard it described, when I've, when I've seen people, images of it, and those sorts of things, floating on a cloud, angels, harps, singing, just, it just sounds, to be quite honest, just sounds really boring to me. It doesn't sound like anything I would ever get all that excited about. And just about that time, the man who was dying, his dog started scratching on the door of the office. The man hears it, and he says to the doctor, he says, Doc, he says, I really can't explain to you what heaven is going to be like, to be honest, in a way that will maybe perhaps remove your doubts. I 
I just don't have the words. But you hear my dog scratching right there? The doc, the doc says, yeah, what of it? He says he's scratching, and he wants in here because he knows I'm in here. He's never been in this room. He knows nothing else about this room. He couldn't tell you anything about this room except that his master is in there. And because his master's there, that's where he wants to be. He said, that's what heaven is to me. I can't tell you all the things that will be there. But I want to be there because my master is there. And as we think about the life to come, and as we think about the life we live now, and how those two intersect, they intersect by the reality of Jesus in your life. They intersect by the reality of God moving, transforming, speaking to you now, letting you know that you are His beloved, letting you know that at the center of life is Him. And we will be most satisfied in this life when we are most satisfied in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray for wisdom. I pray for perspective. God, I pray firstly that if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, who doesn't know what it means to have you in their life, doesn't know what it means to experience your presence, Lord, that you would draw them in your grace and that they would respond in faith here. They would surrender their lives to you, place their lives in your hands, and begin the journey of wonder and discovery that can only be found in relationship with you. God, I also lift up my brothers and sisters here today. I pray, Lord, that you would help us always, always to reflect on who you are. To see life through the lens of your glory and your majesty. To understand that we can face and experience joy even in the midst of severe trials because you're with us. Help us to walk in that power. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.